All right. Does everybody have a, uh, an outline in front of them for, for today? All right. Let's uh, use Psalm 129 as our, our opening. And uh, uh, this, one, this one is very... Some, sometimes when you read the Psalms, it's not as clearly a prayer. Sometimes it's more of a statement, you know, kind of poetic statement. This one is a bit more clearly a, a prayer, at least in the first couple verses. Um, and uh, um, so we'll, we'll, we'll start out with this. Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not haughty. I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Instead, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. My soul is like a weaned child. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. Um, a couple things, you know, in, in the imagery there, the idea of not being proud, you know, or haughty, you know, coming to God with, uh, with humility, huge part of our, our relationship with him. Um, and uh, <laughs> this next bit about, I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Um, the English used to have a, a, a statement, you know, don't, don't rise above your station or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, just kind of this idea that you have a class or um, a station that you fit within and you stay within that through your whole life. Um, if you've read The Lord of the Rings, uh, Sam Gamgee uh, is, uh, um, is a, a gardener. And one of the things that he's always remembering are things that his dad said to him, you know, don't get involved with things that are too great for you. Except, you know, by the time the story's over, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, Sam is like the hero of the story. You know, and nothing was too great for him. And by the time he's done, you know, he is a pretty incredible figure, even though he was just a gardener. Um, and... Uh, uh, so there is a, a worldly aspect to what's, what's being said here, but I also think that this is a good spiritual statement for us. Uh, I do not get involved with things too great or too wondrous for me. Um, I don't have to get my own salvation. I don't have to get myself right with God. You know, those, those things are too big for me. God has done them. You know, so I, I trust in him and I, I rest in his grace. Um, this image of a uh, calmed and quieted soul like a weaned child with its mother. Um, when I do baptisms, you know, if you've got a little infant, sometimes when mom's holding the baby, and if the baby is even remotely hungry, moms, you've experienced this, they're like, you know, because they know mom and, and milk is right there. Um, you know, a, a lot of times when I take the baby away from mom, the baby calms down. Part of that's experience. You know, I have five kids. Uh, but part of that's just mom is not right immediately right there. And, and, you know, and so people are always really amazed. You know, oh, the baby got calm and quiet. I'm like, uh-huh. Because <laughs> I got the baby away from the distraction and uh, the thing that was on the baby's mind. Um, and, uh, and that image of a weaned child uh, is no longer, the child's no longer wrestling, you know, to get at mom. Um, but the child can sit peacefully cuddling with mom, resting in mom's arms, 
You know, and, and it's just that image of, of just really just being close to our Heavenly Father and being held in His love and in His embrace. Um, and then He says, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. So, uh, going back to last week, was there anything uh, on your mind from last week that uh, you wanted to share that uh, was maybe something that carried with you through the week or... It's okay if there's not. Just, you know, if there is, I'd like to have the opportunity to share that. Scripture interpretation. Say it again. Scripture. Scripture. Scripture interpretation. Interpretations, okay. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that a bit, yeah. We talked about Aramaya, I guess. About what? Aramaya. 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 Aramaic? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we talked about that language a little bit. Yep. Anything else? You yeah. just have to be impressed with Paul's zeal. Yeah. Yeah. And not just his zeal, but I think his intellect, too. You know, the way that he is pulling these references from Scripture and just weaving them together, you know, using the same lines from, like, Isaiah. It's just, you know, it's brilliant. All right, then we're going to press on. Um, so we, I want to get uh, into uh, um, verses uh, 7 uh, through 9, but just to start out with verse 6, this is a reminder of where Paul is beginning from. He says, now it is not as though the word of God has failed. And remember, that's the reference to Isaiah, you know, about the, the grass withers, the flowers fall, failed and fall, um, same word, Okay. Uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, and so uh, it's not as though the word of God fell to the ground and died. It was not useless. It, you know, it's going to accomplish the purpose that God gave it for because not all who descended from Israel are Israel. And he's, he's making this, this play that uh, uh, in terms of there are people who are uh, ethnically Israel and there are people who are spiritually Israel. And he's going to start working through that. And so from there he says, Neither is it the case that all of Abraham's children are his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise, at this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. So you notice that there are some lines in here that are in bold. Um, this is one of the things that uh, the um, uh, Christian Standard Bible does with their translation. If it's a direct quote from the Old Testament, they put it in bold. Okay? Uh, so your offspring will be traced through Isaac. Comes to us from Genesis. Uh, and then... At this time, I will come, and Sarah will have a son, also from Genesis. So we're talking about Abraham here, and if we're going to talk about Abraham and kids, we've got to talk about some ladies too, uh, particularly Sarah. And uh, uh, so we know that Abraham was called to leave his father and his father's country when he was 75 years old. And uh, he was basically told, go to a place that I will show you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. 
And then he starts giving promises about kids at 75. Sarah's just a couple years younger than him. You know, she's, you know, 70. I think she's two years younger, if I'm remembering rightly. And if you know, please feel free to correct me on this. So it's still 75 and 73. Um, these are not years that you're usually thinking about, you know, kids. Um, and, uh, and so they go to the, 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 where God says, um, and uh, uh, God gives Abraham a vision in Genesis 15. Um, and, and it's there on your page, uh, verses 1 through 5. And it talks about in that vision, um, God makes a promise that, you know, he's watching over him. He is his shield, his great reward. And Abraham kind of, or Abram at the time, uh, he kind of cuts to the chase and he says, what are you going to give me? I don't have any kids. So even if you give it to me, it's going to go to somebody else. It's not going to stay in my family. You know, so what, what are you talking about here, God? And then God tells him um, that, you know, you will have one who comes from your own body who will be your heir. So Abraham is like, how's this, how's this going to work? I know I'm going to have a child, but I, I, don't, I, I don't know how this happens. And apparently he talked with his wife about this, uh, who at that time was called Sarai. And uh, people being who people are, they try to figure out how does this happen? And Sarai, um, uh, you know, she's probably upper 70s by now. Um, it's like, this ain't happening for me. I'm not going to be able to give you a child. You know, and, uh, and I find this interesting that, you know, it, it really seems pretty clear that um, uh, uh, just, just, just the... Uh, the whole nature of the situation, you know, that they've been given a promise, but they don't trust that God is going to bring the promise about as clearly as he said. So that means I have to figure out how God is going to do this, and I have to then do the things that God you know, wants me to do that I figured out up here in order to bring about the salvation that he said that he would do, because he clearly can't do that completely on his own. And this is something that we still do in different ways, okay? So I'm not looking down on them. Um, but Abram tells Sarai, uh, there's gonna, he says, he's gonna have a kid. Sarai probably says, did he say that I'm going to have a kid? Because <laughs> in that text, it doesn't clearly say Sarai's gonna have the kid. <laughs> and Sarai has a uh, Egyptian slave named Hagar. And uh, this is one of the injustices that we see in the scriptures. You know, a lot of times people will look at the Old Testament and say, um, you know, is it, if you could look back in, in, at the time of the Civil War, there were a lot of people pointing to passages like this to say that, um, look, the Bible gives approval to um, slavery. But if you look at this closely, it really isn't giving approval of slavery. It is showing that it is part of real life. By the way, did slavery end in 1864? No. no. Yeah, um, anybody ever hear of human trafficking? Yeah. That is 
slavery. It's just a different name, different label placed on it. Um, and I don't know why we've chosen to put a different label on it. Um, but, uh, um, you know, slavery is alive and well in our world. And also, um, did, uh, did slavery exist before 1619? Yeah, you know, obviously. Um, this, is, this is the history of the world. You know, and so God is dealing with fallen people. And so we see injustice in the scripture, not as a you know, stamp of approval, but as God working with real people, dealing with real situations. And sometimes those situations are unsavory. And this is one of those unsavory moments because uh, Sarah has a slave, um, her, her name is Hagar, and, um, and Sarah, she's thinking this thing through, she says to Abram, um, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her, I can build a family. So Hagar is her property. Uh, so by extension, any child that would come from Hagar belongs to Sarai. Um, and uh, Abraham said, okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it, it's going to get ugly. Um, the child is born, it's a boy, um, and, uh, um, you know, there's a jealousy issue with Sarai and Hagar. Duh. <laughs> right? You know, she's the one who had the baby. You know, and, uh, and Sarai starts to mistreat her. Hagar runs away, and, uh, um, it's interesting, the baby's name is Ishmael. And Ishmael um, means God hears. And uh, um, as they run away, um, you know, it's this really sad situation. Um, and Hagar is hiding and she's you know, in the wilderness. It's really a hopeless situation. And she calls out to God and God answers her prayer. Um, and sends her back. You know, a lot of times people think, you know, I'm going to pray and my, my whole situation is going to be better. Uh, not, not necessarily. You know, God calls us to bear our crosses, right? And, you know, she's, she's going to continue to bear under the, this unjust system. And, uh, uh, and she's going to go back. And I think it's interesting, she is the first person uh, in the uh, scriptures to give God a name. Um, the names of God are the names that he has kind of given to himself, but she's the first one to, to call God by a different name. And she calls him El Roi, which means uh, God sees me. And I think that that's interesting that in this one chapter, you've got a, uh, a baby named Ishmael, um, you know, God hears, and by the end of the chapter, it's God sees. And how much of our relationship is with God is rooted in this idea, God hears me, God sees. And because God hears me and God sees me, I walk by faith, trusting. Even though what I hear and what I see going on in this world is corrupt and broken, I continue to walk. So here's Abraham, and he now has a son. 
He now has a child. He's a descendant of Abraham. So let's see what, 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 what Paul is doing with this because, you know, He's making this statement about where his offspring will be traced. You know, so you know, we have a son named Ishmael. In chapter 17, uh, God speaks to Abram. He says, as for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. This is where he takes the name Abram, which means exalted father, uh, to change it to uh, Abraham, which means the father of many. Um, and I will make you the father of many nations. Uh, I will make you extremely fruitful and will make kingdoms and kings come from you. So very clearly, you know, lots of descendants. And so far, how many children does Abram have? Still one. God said to Abram, as for your wife Sarai, do not call her Sarai, call her Sarah. Um, this change is a little bit strange because the Sarai and Sarah both being princess. So the, the change in terms of the meaning really isn't there. But I think signifying that she's entering into a different part of her, her life. That things are about to change for her. And so changing the name, changing the identity. Um, I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations, kings of peoples will come from her. And I, want, I really want you to catch this next bit here. Abraham fell face down, then he laughed. People will talk about how Sarah laughed. She ain't the only one. Now Abraham laughed. Can a child be born to a hundred year old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? But that gives 10 years, then. 10 years, yeah. Although we're not necessarily talking exact numbers. A lot of times they will talk round numbers. But yeah, 10 is a good guess um, between them. And, and yes, they are related. Um, yeah, they're same father, different mother, if I remember right. So um, anyhow. Um, uh, so anyhow, uh, yeah, can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? Uh, medically speaking, um, anybody out there want to speak to that? <laughs> Not happening. Uh, all things are possible with God, yes. But, but, but medically speaking, not very likely, right? Um, and so what does Abraham say to God? If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. Because what he's seeing is saying, um, this part ain't going to work, but we do have a little boy here that you can keep that promise to. Remember? Remember? And does Abraham genuinely care about Ishmael? It seems like it. Yeah. You know, he, he, he kind of dotes on him, and I think that's part of the problem you know, with Sarah, too. You know, that his heart goes out to this boy, um, even though, you know, when, it, when the rubber hits the road, you know, he's Camp Sarah um, over Hagar and over Ishmael. And God says, nope, your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac. Now, off the top of your head, anybody know what Isaac means? Laughter. Laughter. I love what God does with names. It's like, you know, you laughed. All right. Just to remind you of that, name him Isaac. 
Um, and, uh, and as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I'm going to bless him. He's going to be fruitful. He's going to multiply. He is going to be part of the promise. The promise of many nations and kings and so on and so forth. And yet, there's another factor in here. This, this idea of um, an offspring that's traced through Isaac. An offspring of a promise. In, in order to continue bringing the salvation that God has promised. Genesis 18, uh, this is where the three visitors come to Abraham, and, you know, he feeds them. I, I always kind of wonder about how this worked, you know, because they, they're, they're coming through, and there's a sense of, you know, we're heading somewhere. And if I'm heading somewhere, and I, you know, run into somebody, you know, it, it, I'll take a couple minutes and talk, but then it's like, got to get going. And, uh, and Abram's like, you know, well, let me get you lunch. Go bake bread. Go slaughter a goat. These are not short processes. You know, so the, you know, even though they're heading somewhere, they're going to they're going to spend a significant period of time uh, with with Abraham. And uh, where is your wife Sarah? There in the tent. The Lord said, "I will certainly come back to you in a year's time, and your wife Sarah." We'll have a son. Um, that highlighting, that's me uh, emphasizing those words. And there's a little bit more conversation. And uh, Sarah's listening at the entry of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were getting old in years. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing, so she laughed. You know, sometimes we hear God's promises, we, we laugh, but not necessarily the right way. <laughs> How can that happen? And that's where she's at. That's where Abraham was in the, in the previous reading. Um, but the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? At the appointed time, I will come back to you. And in about a year, she will have a son. Sarah denied it. I did not laugh um, because she was afraid. Now, God calls her out. No, you laughed. But does it sound like he's really chastising her? No, he's just kind of holding her a little bit accountable there. And you laughed. So did your husband, by the way. Some more stuff takes place in between. And then you get to Genesis 21. And you've got the birth of Isaac. Um, in Isaac, uh, you have laughter come to life. And now the dynamics in Abraham's household become very complicated because you have Hagar and Ishmael. Um, you have a son, but it's the slave's son. Um, in Galatians, Paul really delves into this. I think it's chapter three, um, this comparison between Hagar and, and uh, Sarah. Um, and this is where you know, God is making a distinction is Ishmael the son of Abraham? Yes. Isaac is the son of Abraham. The difference being that Isaac is the son of the promise. That he is the one who is going to carry forward this promise that's been made to Abraham, which carries forward the promises that were made to Adam and Eve. So, Hagar and Ishmael are sent away. 
because Sarah is at this point, you know, Ishmael is not sharing in the inheritance. And so sends him away. Abraham's very grieved by this. You know, so this is one of the things that makes me, you know, no, Abraham does love Ishmael. But God says, no, it's okay. I'm going to take care of them. Send them off. And, uh, you know, verse 12, do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave. Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac. And I will also make a great nation out of the slave's son because he is your offspring. So, what, what, what does Ishmael mean again? Do you remember? God hears. God hears. And what was Hagar's name for God? El Roy, which means? God sees. So, in Genesis chapter 21, we're going to take a look at these verses. You know, I, I just, I don't know, some of the stuff that, that uh, um, God gives us in the scriptures, it's just pretty neat. Um, so 21, verse 17. Uh, so basically, um, they're sent off and um, the water from the skin uh, has, is gone and she, I'll just read it, starting in verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone, she put Ishmael, the child, under the bushes. Uh, so this is Hagar. Um, and then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite of him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard... She's praying for Ishmael, and God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes. He's the God who sees and he gives sight to her and she saw a well of water. Do you think that she really missed that there was a well of water right where she happened to be? I don't think she, I think that the well was not there and then it was. And he provided it. She opened, he opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave it to the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up, and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Um, you know, so you, you see where they come back to this hearing and seeing. So, how many children did Abraham have? Actually, by the time he died, he had seven. Um, because Sarah, you know, so he's got um, Ishmael with Hagar, and then Sarah um, and, and Isaac, and then after Sarah died, he got married again to a woman named Keturah, who gave him five more kids. They're all children of Abraham. 
but for our purposes in Roman, the juxtaposition is between Ishmael and Isaac. A natural biological child and a child of a promise. Uh, Isaac's natural biological in terms of his conception, but you know, uh, with uh, you know, some, some help from the Lord. Actually, every conception is with the help of the Lord, right? And wouldn't Ishmael being the firstborn have ordinarily? Yes, absolutely. Although there, I, I think that some of that could be questioned because of uh, the mother being a slave. But yes, that is normally the way that that would work. What was the question? Wouldn't Ishmael have been the, normally the heir to receive all of the property and everything else? Firstborn. Yep. But it's not just an issue of property here. It's an issue of an eternal promise that, that's at play. And, and God has chosen Isaac to be the one, even before Isaac's born. Has Isaac done anything good or bad? Ishmael, for that matter. No. Isaac was the one that, that was, was chosen. And, and so here we have the, the, these two sons of Abraham. One of them is the one to receive the promise. In this situation, you have two sons with the same father, but with a different mother, each. And those children, of those children, only one of them will carry the promise to bless all nations, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. As the reading goes on, we continue to work our way through Genesis and these early patriarchs of the church and we come to uh, Isaac and Rebekah. So Isaac now has inherited the promise. He marries Rebekah, um, and uh, uh, Rebekah was Laban's uh, sister. Laban is, I'm getting a little bit too far afield here, sorry. But Laban ends up being the, the father of um, Rachel and Leah, who marry um, Jacob and the whole family of Israel, 12 tribes of Israel come from them, and their slave girls too. Um, so it says, Paul continues on, it says, not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man. Um, they're our father Isaac. This is one of the few places that Isaac is called father. You know, Abraham is always called father wherever you, you know, father Abraham, you know, had many sons, you know, all that. And, and um, you know, but here Isaac, the son of Abraham, is called father. Um, for Though her sons had not yet been born or done anything good or bad so that God's promise according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. It is written, I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. Now we've got to spend some time on that last bit, um, but uh, there are a couple things to get to before then. So you've got Isaac and Rebekah. <clears throat> they have twins. Twin boys. Uh, you have um, Esau, who is the oldest. And, uh, um, and, and the story begins very similar to uh, um, Abraham and Sarah, in, in that um, even though they're still childbearing age, uh, apparently Rebecca is childless. When, when I looked at this in the Hebrew, that word childless actually means barren. It wasn't just, you know, 
Yeah, there, there was something there you know, that you know, she was not able to conceive. And it says that uh, um, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife and all of a sudden twins. Okay? And, um, and so there's, there's a sense of a miracle here. Just like there's a miracle with, with Isaac, there's a miracle with, with Esau and with Jacob. And, and God's word is that the older will serve the younger. And that's not the normal arrangement in the society. Uh, and while the prophecy also speaks of the nations that will come from the twins, Paul's only focused on the boys as he's making this comparison. All right? Um, the name Esau means red. Um, no, it means hairy. Um, uh, Edom means red. Uh, Esau uh, means hairy. So imagine what you're seeing when that kid comes out, right? Sometimes kids are, you know, kind of you know, fuzzy when they're, you know. Um, and then Jacob means he grasps the heel. More literally, trickster, deceiver. Because after Esau's born, as you know, Esau's coming out, the first part of Jacob that comes out is his hand, which is not a good way to give birth, by the way. Um, but he's holding on to Esau's heel and, you know, following him out. Um, so when we, we hear this, the older is to, choose, is to serve the younger, um, what, what's, what's the basis for that to be the case? Well, if you look at verse 11, it says, though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, so that the purpose, so God's purpose according to election might stand. So the basis of the older serving the younger is God's purpose. God has a plan. He's accomplishing something with this. Do we necessarily know that when Jacob and Esau are being born? Do we know what that plan is? Do we know how that's all going to play out? Nope. Nope. Um, and that's very much how our lives work too, right? We walk by faith and there's sometimes we're just like... Well, he could have made it simple and had Jacob born first. He could have. But he didn't. But he didn't. Yeah. He didn't serve plan. Right. <laughs> No, that's, that's actually an excellent point. It doesn't serve the plan. Because the, from our eyes, we'd be like, well, yes, of course the oldest. Yeah. Because that's the, the, that's the position of authority. That's the position of power. And, and so much of our lives in, in, in society is based on authority and power. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't come with authority and power. He does have authority and power. But he, it's, it's exercised very differently from what the world likes to see. And he does not call the church, he doesn't call his followers to authority and power, but to service, to take up our crosses, all of those kinds of things. And, and, and so this idea that we come from the lower place is really important. You know, and this is really important as Paul's talking to the Romans too. You know, you're not here, Roman Christians, because, you know, you're nations, you know, citizens of the greatest nation of the world at the time, or any of those things, you're here because God in his mercy has brought you here. And it's, it's a humble place to be. It's a low place to come from. And so, the same way that, you know, Isaac 
Um, the matter is not genetics that gives him the inheritance, but God's calling. It, it's his purpose and it's his election. It, it's the same thing for um, Jacob. You know, because it says in verse 12, not from works, but from the one who calls. So think about that in terms of our life in Christ. Our salvation is not rooted in what we've done, but in the one who has called us and who's delivered this gift. The emphasis here is about this child of the promise. And, and I like that little phrase, child of the promise, because you go all the way back to Genesis 3. You know, I will put enmity between you and the woman with your seed and her seed. This whole idea that there is going to be a, a, a child, a little baby boy, someday who's going to crush the serpent's head. And I don't know, I kind of imagine, you know, Jewish moms, every time they have a boy, that somewhere in the back of their head there's got to be a question, could this be the one? You know, if they're trusting these, these promises. You know, but the whole thing comes down to the promise, not the, the status or anything that they, these people did. Because frankly, Jacob was a skunk. You know, read through the rest of his life. He's a cheat, he's a scoundrel. Cheats Esau out of the birthright, yeah? You know, I, I'm always a little bit sympathetic because I mean, how dumb do you have to be to sell your birthright for a bowl of lentil soup? Um, but that being said, do you think that Jacob didn't know his brother was going to fall for that? That his brother was a bit of a knucklehead? You know, that he's very impetuous? You know, and think about you know, how he got Isaac's blessing before he left, with his mom's help, by the way. You skin a goat, put it on your arms, you know, go into dad, which really makes me wonder how hairy this guy was. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and Isaac, who is blind at this point, you know, feels the hair, smells the clothes, and he gives him the blessing that he intended to give to Esau. He's a trickster. He's a cheat. Even when he's dealing with Laban, who is a trickster and a cheat in his own right. You know, I'm going to work 17 years, I think, or something like that. No, seven years um, for uh, your daughter, Rachel. And then after seven years, I can marry her. And Laban's like, good deal. Let's do that. And he wakes up the next morning after the wedding, and there's Leah. That was Laban's doing. You know, it, and Jacob ends up basically cheating Laban out of everything, you know, with, you know by his practices taking care of the animals. Um, and God bless that. You know, I mean, this is worth thinking about in terms of who does God call? It's not always these people that were like, well, those people, they're holy and upright. They do everything right. No, it, this, is, this is all about his grace the whole way through, and it's not fair. It's God's choosing, God's compassion, and his caring. So, 
We get to this passage where it says, it's written, I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. And uh, this is a passage that's always bothered me and I've never uh, really completely known how to, uh, how to think this through. But I think, I, I think I'm on a good track with it now. And um, let me share this with you and see what, what you think, if this is, if this is helpful. So in the way that we talk about love and hate in our culture, we treat these as opposites, right? They're polar ends. Um, although I think you can make an argument that the opposite of love is not hate, but neglect. You don't care at all. Apathy. Indifference. Indifference, yeah. Um, but, uh, um, but the way we usually talk about it, love and hate are, are treated on opposite ends of the, the spectrum. Now, when it says, Jacob, I have loved, that word is agape. Um, this is Christian love. This is not usually the word that's used, you know, for a parent loving a child or, or you know, something like that. Um, this is, uh, when you think of agape, you think of like, Delivering God's gifts to people, delivering God's blessings, you know, you know, the, the good things that God wants to have people in their lives. That's, that's, that's what we're extending to people. You know, and we're treating people out of that. Okay? Um, then he goes and he says, um, but Esau I have hated. And I'm beginning to wonder if that's the best translation of the word. It is a good, right translation of the word on the surface level, but I think that maybe there's something more going on. Because in Genesis chapter 29, we, we get this account of, uh, of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. And one of the, the things that's really clear about Jacob is that when he went into this bargain with his uncle, um, he, uh, uh, he did this to marry Rachel, right? You know, it, it, it's, it's interesting. You know, as he, they talk about the, the, the two women, you know, Jacob's just completely smitten with Rachel and it says Leah had weak eyes. I'm not really completely clear on exactly what that means. Some people have said that that means she's really ugly. Um, some people um, say that that means that she just didn't have a lot of spunk. You know, there's not a lot going on behind the eyes type of thing, you know. Um, but there's something undesirable to Jacob about Leah. And, uh, um, and it says that Jacob loved Rachel. But it goes on and it says that Jacob hated Leah. It says it twice. That God sees that Jacob hated Leah. But let's consider the facts of this relationship. Six of Jacob's sons come from Leah. And doesn't she have girls too? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he couldn't have hated her too badly. You, you, yeah, you know, and, and I mean, his heart is very much connected to Rachel, 
You know, th this is the, you know, this is the way we talk about love in, in our world, you know. Oh, the, the whole swooning and all of that good stuff. Um, but he, he clearly doesn't hate Leah. Yeah, because he's still wooing her um, and you know, other things um, and taking care of her and she is the family and you know, all of that. She's not, he's not passionate about her, but you know, she, he loves her, you know, in terms of the way he treats her. And, you know, it's just that he definitely treats Rachel in a special way, which isn't cool. Remember, not endorsing, recording real observations about our world. Nor does this actually endorse um, marrying multiple wives. People have, have said that. Um, not endorsing, but these things happen. Um, so the comparison is what's important when we start talking about God's choosing. So perhaps instead of hated, um, spurned might be a better translation. Treated more coldly. You know, and I think that this fits with you know, the whole Rachel and Leah thing in terms of, what, what I'm trying to say is I think that this is a legitimate um, translation of the word rather than going directly to hated. Consider some other places. Deuteronomy chapter 21, 15 through 17. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other neglected, interesting, they chose to translate it neglected because the word is hated. And both um, uh, the loved and the neglected bear him sons. And if the neglected wife has the firstborn son, when the man gives what he has to his sons as an inheritance, he is not to show favoritism to the son of the loved wife uh, as the firstborn over the firstborn of the neglected wife, the hated wife. It's, 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 I think it's more this idea of spurned, you know, that, it isn't the favorite. It is, it, you know, um, it, it's the one who does not receive the, the doting and the, the gifts and all of those things. Another example, this one's from the Gospels, Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you think God really wants you to hate your family? I think we're supposed to leave the building now. 